Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You buy long-term securities, you drive up their price, you drive down their yield. My colleagues and I are acutely aware that high inflation imposes significant hardship. The stock market is doing extremely well, which means to me jobs. Because we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labour Party that shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas. All of their red ink is really our blacking. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, last week, the UK's new chancellor issued a new budget that didn't go down very well. The pound fell a few percent in one day. Government bond yields shot higher. Not exactly ringing endorsement from the financial markets. The problem is, not only is it giving the rich more money, hoping that they'll spend it and the benefits will trickle down, because we all know that works so well, but also it means the government is spending a hell of a lot more than it is bringing in in tax revenue, more than twice what they spent on furlough. A lot of that in subsidising energy costs. Now, modern monetary theory suggests government should be able to run a deficit without worrying too much about it. When they overspend their budget, it's extra money that goes into the private sector. But is there a point where that just goes too far and there is just too much money in the economy? And are we there right now or will we get there with all this extra government spending? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. All right, so Steve, I want to talk about how much money governments can spend before it creates problems, whether it's new money or not. We can talk about that. But the context for this, obviously, is that, you know, governments spent a great deal coping with COVID, and now they're spending uh, even more coping with the energy crisis. And then add to all of that in the UK last week, tax cuts. So we had Kwasi Kwarteng, who uh, sounds like uh, the member of the silly party from the uh, uh, from the Monty Python sketch here, Kwasi Kwarteng. Shh, don't tell Fata- anybody. Don't tell, it's supposed to be a secret. <laughs> Kwasi Kwarteng, Fatang, Fatang, Ole, Biscuit Barrel. Uh, well, he had his uh, moment in the sun last week and in the mirror and the Telegraph and every paper in the UK, actually, <laughs> uh, because his budget, the, uh, the one he's able to give, because he's now the Chancellor, who has been appointed by a Prime Minister not voted in by the public or the preferred choice of the Tories' own elected representatives in Westminster, but instead a small number of uh, people who paid their dues to the Tory party as members who bought votes, in effect. Uh, So he's got into this position of power. He's been able to come up with a budget that favours the rich and adds billions, many, many billions of extra spending by the government. You can see I have a problem with this, can't you? Uh, So, Steve, I mean, the government had already issued um, a a lot of bonds uh, to cover spending through the pandemic. This now, particularly, most of it is not actually as tax cuts, but that's added to it. Uh, But also the the cost of subsidising energy is double the cost of furlough spending. Uh, and then you've got tax cuts on top of that. So uh, what is the impact of such a high level of government spending? I mean, these are unprecedented. I know they can issue bonds and there's the whole MMT argument, but there has to be a level when there is just too much money 
that uh, that, that governments are are creating by by adding to you know what we traditionally call government debt. Yeah, I mean, it's that's that's one thing which modern monetary theory has been you know quite emphatic about all the way through. They're not necessarily as systematic about it as I would like them to be. That's something you need to develop over time. But the argument that there is a limit set by the capacity of the economy to absorb that amount of money uh, is the is the, the limit that MMT, modern monetary theory, talks about, rather than the capacity to create it and the burden, the financial burden of creating that debt. So the, 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 the most, the, the crazy thing is, and this is actually, uh, in some ways, it's an echo from dear old Karl Marx, uh, who once said that the government is the is the management committee for the ruling class of society? And this guy, uh, what's his name? Patang Patang Ole Biscuit Barrel. Um, quasi Quatang, yeah. Quasi Quatang Ole Biscuit Barrel. Yeah, he is clearly acting on behalf of the you know the ruling class as the the, the the managing committee of the ruling class because the money that's being created, as you're saying, uh, most of it is going to go to the uber wealthy already, and that mm. it isn't so much that that. Uh, is a uh, you know something government can't do it's got all the capacity in the world to do it because of the way government finances works and how government uh, can create money but the thing is it's giving to people who are going to use that money not to go out and buy toilet paper and more energy supplies blah 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 but more financial assets and 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 uh, and and uh, drive up the property price of property uh, at the high end of the of the market, uh, which well, is not I, something I thought UK needed all that badly at the moment. <laughs> no, you wouldn't have thought so. But I mean, something in his defence, something had to be done about energy prices, and I guess that's important. By, yeah, yeah, and and by subsidising energy or by capping it, it's it's kept inflation in check as well because inflation would just go crazy. So so the Bank of England likes them on that. But I don't think the Bank of England likes the fact that all of a sudden we've also got all these tax cuts, because obviously the whole idea behind all of this, you know, the argument they're giving, and it's the whole Laffer curve thing, you know, that uh, this is going to create growth. Now, even if the even if you believe the the, the Laffer curve, this idea that tax cuts uh, will mean the the rich can invest in, in, in businesses, then that's going to create jobs, and that uh, those jobs will mean more people are paying tax. I mean, first of all, the unemployment rate is close to historic lows, so there's not there's nobody there to take up those jobs. But secondly, the Bank of England right now doesn't want growth. I mean, the Bank of England is pushing up interest rates to try and stop growth. So if they're there pushing uh, for growth, I mean, it is pushing on a string, isn't it, really? It's not going to happen. But if they're there thinking they can push growth at a time when the Bank of England is trying to reduce growth, I mean, they are at odds with each other. Yeah, well, you've got fiscal policy, which is being massively stimulatory, and it, and monetary policy, which is being massively contractionary. So mm. it's it's a pretty impressive double. But this is this is this has been a frequent occurrence uh, ever since the days of uh, you know, letting central banks set interest rate policy independently. Uh, the crazy thing is now that what we've got is inflation, which is caused partially by the enormous amount of government money created during the, the pandemic. And let's just point out one thing I saw Stephanie Colton mention on her blog, uh, the, the, her, her Substack blog uh, yesterday. And that is that this is the recovery from COVID has been the, f- the fastest recovery pretty much in the history of recessions. And the reason is that the usual sort of nonsense that governments go on about how they, you know, they've got, they, they can't, uh, intervene to affect the market, et cetera, et cetera. That went out the window when COVID hit because even Blind Freddy could see that if you didn't give government money at a time when people couldn't go to their private sector jobs, 
the economy had collapsed without the level of government spending that was created. It was inadequate in some ways. It didn't go to the right people all the way through, but it did cause a dramatic turnaround. And we've now got a boom going on uh, in, in within you know, literally months of the uh, uh, hypothesised ending of the COVID crisis. Not, not really. Is that because they created course, too much money? No, I, 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 I think they, they, they sh- where the money went, uh, you know, the, 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 the furlough scheme, for example, enabled people to pay their rent and pay their mortgages, even though they couldn't go to work. Uh, if you didn't have that, you would have had a financial crisis rather than a boom. So be careful what you wish for. The people who are complaining about there being too much government spending during COVID uh, can't actually know what the alternative universe was, where if we didn't give any, any people any government money at all, then they would have been un- unable to pay their rents, uh, unable to pay their mortgages, and we could have had financial collapses everywhere. So the fact we did not have a financial crisis yeah, maybe, maybe you know, inverted commas, too much was created, but you can never know what is too much or too little in advance of the situation. But why did we? Why we? You should. Yeah, do. but why did why why such a fast recovery? Because mm-hmm. presumably we could have pinpointed it more more. I mean, we could have actually said, "Well, I'll tell you what, we'll pay your mortgage, uh, or pay your rent specifically. Show us uh, show us how much it is, or tell us who to pay, and we'll we'll pay it, and then we'll give you a small amount to uh, you know on, on top of that to to live off." I mean, it could have been much more targeted, couldn't it? But why? Why Why this boom? Why such a fast recovery? I mean, that implies that we've come out the other end with a, with a stack of cash ready to spend, which, you know, suggests that, yes, too much money was created, doesn't it? <laughs> too much money, well, yeah, but think too much money... And- if we, what's the alternative? If you try to create too little, we could have had financial crises everywhere. I, this is a, I'd, if I had a choice between a problem of, a, of an inflationary surge caused to some extent by excessive government money creation in response to an unprecedented crisis, I'd rather have that than a financial crisis coming out of no response whatsoever. But you know what? The, you know, the traditional economists are going, oh, well, this is a prime example. Uh, you increase the money supply too much. And then you get inflation. So that was, you know, this is classic Milton Friedman, isn't it? Really, too too much money chasing too few goods is, you know, and uh, and that's the inflationary cause. You know, if the, if the money supply increases more than real economic output, that's going to give you inflation. Yeah, but it's it's it, 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 it's only a partial explanation of why we had the inflation. I mean, another factor which is still a major is the impact on supply chains of COVID. And we're actually, so God knows what's happening in China this week, by the way, whether it's a push or whether it's another outbreak of, uh, of COVID uh, that's causing a lockdown over there. But the extent to which there have been supply disruptions in the globalised supply chain we've had, that uh, is, is an issue which is you know, one of the primary causes of the inflation is an increase in the cost of production because we've had globalisation reducing those costs too much for too long because the way they cost were reduced was primarily by swapping low wage workers in the third world for high, for higher wage workers in the first world and then extending the supply chain dramatically which meant of course you were susceptible to any uh, disturbance in the capacity to ship goods from one place to another which COVID caused you know in spades uh, so it's the cost of production that has gone up and what we have as a central bank that's trying to fight that by putting up interest rates when the real impact of that interest rate increase in the past has been to dampen aggregate demand 
and cause unemployment to rise. And that would mean that excessive wage rises don't occur. But guess what? Excessive wage rises are not occurring. We know the rate of inflation right now caused largely by that increase in the supply cost and potentially by firms putting up their markups as well. That rate of inflation far exceeds the rate of growth in wages. So we can't say it's wages which are causing the inflation. The only two possible causes are an increase in the cost of production, and COVID ticks that particular box, and the breakdown of globalisation is well caused by COVID, but also firms putting up their, their markups because there's such a level of demand out there that they're not fighting each other for market share. So you would have an inclination to put up your markup because there's more demand for a lot of commodities than you can, you know, than you can supply. In that situation, particularly when you face falling costs with increasing volume, and this is the standard situation for the vast majority of firms, the larger their output is, the lower their per unit cost of production is. When there's tons of demand out there, why not take a larger profit margin? But the, so but the- I think that's... Yeah. yeah, because they can, but and they can because yeah. people presumably because people have got more money to spend. And where did why why has that happened? Because when we went in, understanding what you're saying about the, the supply side of it all, and we'll look at that in just yeah. a second. But when when we went yeah. into uh, the, the COVID, we were worried about deflation. It was the exactly exactly the opposite mm-hmm. uh, problem. Now we're now we're facing inflation because people are prepared to spend more, and the demand for goods, very often in many categories, is higher than it was when we went in. So what's changed? He well, must be because we've got more money. The, the creation of money, the government running a deficit is a private sector surplus. And this is one of the one thing we should not lose out of this. And, and I can see the mainstream trying to lose this insight uh, because they desperately don't want to learn this piece, piece of real world information. The government deficit dollar for dollar is the private sector surplus. If the government runs a deficit, what was what was the scale of the UK deficit? Do you know the number of... of no. The, uh, you don't have it there. Okay. But it, let's say the deficit was, you know, uh, 25% of GDP, which is quite feasible. What that would be about $500 billion uh, in, in money. Then that creates $500 billion in money in the private sector. The the, ne- the, the only way that can be brought down, uh, and this does happen, and we're looking at some countries, it happens quite dramatically as well, is when the banks then sell those bonds to non-bank financial institutions, because that reverses the money creation. But given the scale of this, uh, of the, the boost, most of that turned up in reserves rather than bonds. The banks can't sell reserves to non-bank financial institutions, so we therefore have seen a large increase in the amount of money. Large, and also it's in the hands of the non-bank, not the non-financial sector, the, non, the non-bank public, rather than the hands of uh, NBFIs, which is where most of the like the quantitative easing money turns up. So yes, there has been a large increase in cash. People do largely spend out of the out of the financial buffers they have because those financial buffers have risen. Uh, they're spending more, and that has caused an increase in the monetary level of demand. Um, but as the extent again, I'd rather have that problem than the alternative problem we could have had of of, uh, of, a, of a financial crisis and deflation uh, if we hadn't given people the cash flow to meet their commitments and pay their cost of living during COVID. Right. And that, I mean, it is, it's easy to understand that transference, isn't it? I guess it's the speed at which all of this happens as well. So the government spends money. I mean, it's, it's got to spend it in the private sector because the government doesn't, uh, you know, the, the, Jacob Rees-Mogg is not out there building roads, for example. If, if they decide they need to build a road, they've got to pay someone to do it. So straight away that money has gone into the, yeah. uh, in, into the private sector. 
so, I mean, the government government money never really stays in the government very long, does it? I mean, if they spend money, it it, uh, it goes out into the, into the broader economy. So um, the problem now, of course, is a lot of that money is, is actually just going to go with, with the fuel subsidies. A lot of that money is just going to go to energy companies, uh, pure and pure and, and simple. And that's that's part of the problem. The whole privatisation of energy was a huge mistake. Uh, as, as I saw Yanis Varoufakis arguing uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, there's only one wire bringing electricity into your house. Whoever supplies the, vib- the vibrating electrons along that cable uh, is is irrelevant, in effect, to the to the end user because it's still vibrating electrons that are going to give you the you know the alternating circuit that lets you make make your make your toast for breakfast. Um, and the the market, the, the the wholesale market, was designed uh, on the on believing conventional economic theory that said that marginal costs rise without increase in production. Now that's bollocks for the vast majority of firms. Bollocks most of the time for the vast majority of energy producers as well. Uh, but, but the way that's actually been said is even worse because assuming that cost cost rises with with volume. Uh, the higher the unit, the higher the higher the output, the higher per unit cost. Assuming that is true when it's false, uh, the system has also been set up in such a way that it's the highest cost producer who sets the the supposed marginal cost for the entire industry. And if that happens to be a, a coal firm, a coal coal, a, a coal energy producer, or a, a gas turbine energy producer, then that enormous pr- price. Uh, goes to all the producers who have a lower cost level than that maximal cost producer. So it's a huge windfall to the private companies. Now, this, 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 we, now the market itself has been a farce, and we're now seeing it, that rather than the market efficiently allocating resources and making things better, we're seeing this enormous cost increase in cost of production. And it, it, would, it will... Money will feed through to the energy companies. It won't hit because of the um, the cap. It won't hit poor income families all that much. But what I've seen is there's no such uh, benefit being provided to companies. So a lot of uh, small no, there companies is now. are facing. <clears throat> there is now. Is there, so what's, saying, what, yeah, yeah. what's happening now? Yeah, that's well, good. That's good. I'm glad. Yeah. So that, I mean, it's it's ca- it's capped at uh, pretty much where it is now. I think, or it's going to be. Yeah. So the the price is not going to go any more for uh, for um, for private companies. So that's capped as well. At an extraordinary expense. I mean, this is where, you know, by subsidising uh, the households and companies, that this is where the cost over the next year is going to be more than double what it's been for the furlough, you know, the cost of the furlough scheme, which is why the mm, question about, yeah. you know, just how far can you go? But all of this money, of course, if it's if it's been given to, uh, I mean, indirectly, it's been given to the energy companies, isn't it? Because they're not taxing yeah, that's the, right. the energy companies. They're going to get companies. the money, yeah. Uh, and those energy companies are overseas, so this yeah. is government creating money, of, which is dis, which is basically subsidising overseas providers. What does that mean for, and it's, for, for the pound? And it's also fossil fuel companies as well. So the companies yeah. you don't want to have money right now are going to get large amounts of money right now. Again, yeah. another reason why we shouldn't have privatised the whole thing. But yeah, uh, they, well, they, you're going to give them money in pounds. 
they're going to want to convert that money from pounds to say dollars if they're American companies, which means they're going to be selling the pound and buying the dollar, which is going to amplify the devaluation of the British pound, which will feed back into the rate of inflation because Britain imports well, at least 30% of its food and a large part of its manufactured goods as well. So this is going to actually feed into the inflation the Bank of England is trying to stop, which means the Bank of England will put up interest rates as well, and we're caught in a crazy circle of, we should never really have taken these textbooks seriously, should we? <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, and this is where we find ourselves now. Look, I, I want to revisit that, uh, that, that whole uh, supply side uh, argument mm. about you know how we, how we got to the high level of inflation. Uh, and then uh, also Martin Wolf said something interesting in the FT at the weekend. I want to have a quick look at that as well. We're going to do that in just a second. This is the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. We are back in just a second. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, uh, we were talking earlier about the idea that, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the inflation that we're seeing right now is uh, supply side driven. You know, the, the difficulties we're having coming out of China. Uh, I mean, that is that is part of it. But it, it's interesting, isn't it, how central banks very early on were saying, oh, this is all transitory because for precisely that reason. Uh, that, that that they thought it was supply driven, and those supply chain problems would sort themselves out eventually, uh, and that could still be the case. You assume that is still going to be the case, and yet central banks have completely changed their tune and said, "No, no, no, we're going to have to put up interest rates because uh, you know all of a sudden uh, we've realised that's what we're supposed to do when inflation is high." But presumably, it's exactly the wrong thing to do when it's supply constraint inflation. Uh, which is what they thought it was originally. I wonder why they changed their minds so markedly. I think because they've, they're basically freaked by the numbers. I mean, I used to make the joke that the, the, the three numbers you had to learn for a, understand what mainstream economists are going to do is two, three, and four. They want a, a 2% yeah. rate of inflation, a 3% rate of economic growth, and about a 4% interest rate. That's, that's the sort of target they've always aimed for. And of course, they got smashed by the global financial crisis, which none of them saw coming. The Bank of International Settlements with, with uh, Bill White were the only formal group to actually anticipate the financial crisis. All the central banks thought it was going to be a fabulous year, 2008. Uh, so they were driven down to zero interest rates. And what they've been doing throughout with QE is actually pumping up um, house prices and asset prices, which have had massive asset price inflation. And that's has, because people have been sucked into taking out mortgages by the low interest rates, 
and that's also that's what caused the high rate of price inflation. We now have high interest rates coming in, which is going to trash the asset markets. And central banks, I think, are in a complete, completely flummoxed because for a long time they've actually ignored their 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 ambit on nominal inflation, consumer good inflation, because it's caused being so low. They took credit for getting it so low, but the real cause of it being so low was globalization and low energy costs. And now what we're seeing, globalization is breaking down and energy costs are starting to go through the roof because we are we are striking the limits of cheap energy and the also the limits of cheap ore which we process with that energy, or not so much cheap or as, as, as rich ore. We're now having to do a large amount of manufacturing as in taking, taking low-grade ore and putting large amounts of energy into processing it. So all these things are going to be causing a long-term increase in cost of production. And this is all the stuff the limits to growth warned about 50 years ago and was ignored. That's, a major, that, that's another major cause of the increase in prices which has got nothing to do with aggregate demand and actually nothing to do with COVID either. We are simply facing an increase in the cost of production because what production involves doing fundamentally is taking energy and using it to process raw materials into, into finished finish goods. And the decline, the decline in cheap energy and the decline in quality of all, the stuff that Simon Maichow has done some brilliant work on that together is going to cause it's going to be more expensive to produce everything and you can't do nothing you do with interest rates is going to change that but conventional economists would see that as well wouldn't they you know that old adage you know if you've got a field and you uh, and you plant crops in it uh, you're going to get to a point where you know planting anything extra and getting anything extra out of that field you know you've got a finite resource is obviously going to the, the cost is going to increase the, the longer you go it's the same with any resource isn't it if you if you're trying to tap something which is limited which is not infinite uh, the more you tap it eventually it's going to get more expensive because it's going to get more difficult to to get any extra yield out of it i mean that's you know i mean go back to agricultural based economies that was the has always been the case why haven't we learned that because we you started off talking about conventional economists you could have stopped at that point <laughs> everything else you said had been moderately realistic and that doesn't that doesn't describe modern economics at all i mean one of my favorite recent papers is by rudy buckman and friends in germany saying that uh a 10% fall in Russian energy to the German economy would, according to mainstream economic theory, cause a 0.4% fall in GDP. And according, if, if they couldn't find energy from any other sources, which of course they can do to some extent, um, and, and even with advanced economic theory, 10% fall in GDP, only 1.5% fall. So they, in, in, in energy, 1.5% fall in, in GDP. They, they don't have a clue about a lack of availability. The real problem with the way mainstream economists think about this is they have this notion of substitutability in their minds. And if you run out of one thing, you can always substitute with something else. Mm. So if you run out of energy, you can substitute with something else. Now, what might that something else be? Uh. Okay. There, there is, there's, there's forms of energy. You can substitute one for the other at great cost after you re, re, re-engineer and remanufacture everything. But energy itself, run out of energy, tough shit, guys. You can't substitute non-energy with energy. Directly or indirectly, it all comes from the sun, doesn't it, really? So, uh, you know. Yeah, and, ultimately, and the... but, we, you know, but that, that, that's our problem. <laughs> we're, we, 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 we're relying upon a, a cheap pulse of ancient solar energy stored in the form of fossil fuels, which we've 
you know, rapaciously mined across the entire planet for the last quarter of a millennium. And we still have enormous amounts of coal availability around the world, but the cheapest and most powerful lot was oil. Yeah. And we have, we have extracted so much oil, we're now only maintaining production levels overall by unconventional running right. called so, fracking, which, yeah, which I exactly. believe isn't another thing in the UK. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're going to push ahead with fracking. Yeah, good luck with that. I mean, I'm, you know, talking to a lot of people about this, it's just a, a, a prohibitively expensive in this country. So it's, it's never going to happen anyway. So they can talk about it, but it's just it's, we're not going to see it. But uh, that's, a, that's an aside. That's just a diversion, I think, for them. Uh, but uh, and you know it'd be very nice if Jacob Rees-Mogg was to get some fracking in his local community um, uh, in southwest England but I don't think I can't see that happening conveniently Uh, but so the the rising cost of energy and then of course we've got this extra cash uh, because of because of government spending so the more the government spends if they're putting if that ultimately finds itself into the you know going into the economy the government spends money it goes into the uh, into the private sector, even though we've said, you know, with energy, a lot of it will go overseas, but some of it's going to s- stick in the UK, um, then that surely is just going to make this situation worse. So is that going to add to the inflationary pressures that we're seeing? Because we're going to see increased... Is it, again, going to be too much money chasing too few goods? Yeah, well, but it, it's going to be too much money enabling um, producers to put up their markups uh, uh, while they also face rising cost of production. Uh, but the ones who are being screwed out of this are the workers because the, 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 the really big gap now is going to open up between the rate of change of consumer prices and the rate of change of wages. And from what I've seen in most of the world, we, if prices are rising about 3 or 4% faster than wages are rising, which means about a 3 or 4% fall in real in real living standards, even though people have got this cash buffer that's been built up through the stimulus by COVID. So the stuff, the cash buffer will run down. We're likely to see uh, that not, it won't, won't run down in the aggregate, but it'll be transferred out of the hands of the working class into the uh, fossil, fossil fuel companies and into the wealthy. And that's going to amplify the inequality, which is also a major reason why we have the social breakdown we're facing right, today. Which doesn't help productivity one jot, does it, obviously? Uh, because you are disincentivizing those uh, those those workers, uh, and uh, so, I mean, I'm just wondering what's the what's the most effective way then, if quasi for tang for tango, lay biscuit barrel, rather than following the conventional approach of thinking, well, what we need to do is make the wealthy wealthier with tax cuts, so that they can invest that money. Uh, and somehow magically that money that they invest will create more jobs even though the unemployment rate is close to uh, all-time lows so I don't know where those workers are going to come from because they're obviously not coming from overseas because we've closed that uh, closed that door with Brexit uh, but mm. aside from these you know slight weaknesses in his argument I'm, sh- I'm sure he's thought th- all of these things <laughs> through because he must have spent more than a minute on this uh, the uh, the, the impact uh, how do you get that growth if it's not by you know his trickle down approach, it, I mean it is a case that you've got a. The only way you're going to see growth is from the bottom up, and we're seeing a weakness there because they have less money to spend. Because as you say, that in effect their real wages are being dissolved by inflation, and they've also the energy is a far larger part of the cost. Even though this cap is being applied, it's still an increase over yeah. level is there beforehand. So they're going to have less. Which has been the major driver of inflation, well, one of the major yeah, drivers going to, of inflation, of course. They're going to yeah. have less money to spend in shops, so you're likely to see a downturn in aggregate demand. Uh, in, in not so much the high street, let's say the medium to low street, uh, that's where it's going to strike in the UK. 
So you're not going to get any economic growth out of this. Not that we should be looking for economic growth right now because, hey, it's climate change, bozos, and that's what we should be focusing ourselves on. But I couldn't think of a less relevant uh, set of economic uh, policies uh, <laughs> for the current time than what the Tories have put yeah, together. That'll be why the pound fell 3.5% on, uh, on, on Friday and is heading towards parity with the US dollar for the first time ever. Which just adds to inflation, of course, because, you know, Britain is a net importer, so uh, the price of everything is going to go up. Yeah, and I've heard quite a few, uh, I saw a tweet saying quite a few finance sector types both applauded the uh, the, the uh, Ole Biscuit Barrel's uh, uh, budget and also yeah. shorted the pound at the same time because they knew they were going to see an increase, you know, decrease in the value of the pound. And as I said, the fact they've got to repatriate the profits they've got from, you know, overseas owned energy companies in the UK across to America and Europe and and probably also China, I imagine these days, uh, they're going to have to convert those extra UK pounds into American dollars, which is going to have an impact on its sale price on international markets. That is just that. That is the epitome of of low morals, isn't it? Uh, applauding it while shorting the pound. It's sort of like we could see yeah, this. Yeah. We could see this coming. We knew it was going to be. And and then you know the uh, bond yields. So here's the interesting thing. So bond yields have shot up as well, uh, because people are a little bit unsure about you know. Well, first of all, they, they know the market is going to be flooded with uh, with bond issuance now by by the UK government. So there's the interesting thing. Maybe you, you have an answer for this. So, because of course, bond yields work inversely to bond prices. And for those who don't quite understand how that works, imagine if you've got a hundred dollars worth of bonds and they were paying ten. They wouldn't never at this level, but they were paying you ten percent uh, uh, return. So for, for your hundred for your hundred pound hundred pounds that you've invested in bonds, you get ten pounds back per year. Uh, if they all of a sudden halved in value. Uh, you're still getting £10 back per year because that's what was agreed with at, the, at the issuance of the bond. So in effect, the return you're getting is now 20% rather than 10%. So that as the price falls, the yield increases. And we've seen that. So a big increase in, uh, in yields because the prices of bonds are falling because all of a sudden everyone's going, my God, how many bonds is quasi kutang fatang fatang ole biscuit bile going to be issuing? It's, it's going to be a lot. Therefore, we're going to pay less for each one. Therefore, the yield goes up. But the yield obviously also reflects the uh, expected uh, interest rate because you can't have the uh, the central bank with an interest rate which is that much below what people are expect and the the government to issue new bonds with a you know if the government issues new bonds they've got to offer an interest rate which is comparable with what bonds are being charged for now. So they are so you can't have the interest rate issued by the central bank too out of kilter with what the uh, the interest paid on bonds being issued by the government is can you so it's so if bond yields are going up because there's so many bonds doesn't that automatically mean also we're we're sort of like stuck with high interest rates for longer no the the government's got a lot more control over the interest rate uh, than uh, than conventional thinking would argue it has uh, when the inflation is this high, you can't put corporate bonds out with low rates because the corporate bonds won't sell. But if you put out government bonds with low rates, they will sell 
still for two reasons. One, you've got an automatic requirement of you know market makers and and uh, primary dealers and so on to buy the bonds when they're issued. But the funds, not the money, the funds they use to to buy those bonds are created by the deficit itself. So when you have a huge deficit like the one we had, let's say it's 25% of GDP, let's say 500 billion pounds, that turns up as 500 billion pounds of reserves, as well as seeing up as 500 billion pounds of deposit accounts uh, in the private sector. And when the government says we want to now issue 500 billion pounds worth of bonds to, uh, to banks, the banks are doing a swap from 500 billion pounds worth of reserves that they can't trade and which normally don't earn any interest at all across to 500 billion pounds worth of bonds which they can trade and which do earn an interest rate so it'd be quite possible in the primary market to offer a very low rate on that uh, on that those bonds and if it's, a, if it's a better rate than you get on reserves it's still a worthwhile swap for the banks to do the question then is what happens when those bonds get traded on the secondary market and the bonds and, that are already uh, out there which the bonds that are already out there which have got you know very high yields that, that would it would just bring the yields down on all of those then presumably oh yeah well good you, you could try you could try to manipulate them but uh, the, the high interest rates that are being you, you don't have to offer a high rate on government bonds to encourage private sector people to buy them the banks have to not have to buy them but they'd be fools not to buy them the question then is could they then sell those bonds uh, at, at, a, at a profit if they want to sell the bonds to non-bank financial institutions and with a huge part of their trading in the past has been get buying the government bonds uh, and then selling them at a markup of some description uh, you know sell the mm. bonds to a to a higher price meaning a lower yield to the um, to the um, non-bank financial institutions, that's not likely to happen. If if those financial institutions are looking at you know corporate bonds yielding ten percent, let's say, and the government yield uh, yielding two or three uh, percent, so that particular trade wouldn't happen. So the, you would you would disrupt the market by being too far away from what corporate bonds are. But the government has got that capacity to control the rate they put right. on government bonds. But but why would people? Yeah, why would they if they're going to get a better yield out of corporate bonds? Or more to the point, why would they when they can get a better yield out of uh, uh, bonds in the U.S. or or anywhere else in the world? I yeah. mean, that's, mm-hmm. so the fact that the 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 yields rose, the prices of bonds dropped so much, and the yields rose so much on on Friday, uh, a massive reaction to quasi fatang fatang ole biscuit barrels uh, budget. So it wasn't just the pound that went down so much; also bond yields shot up as well. So. Um, you know what? You've got a choice as to where you buy bonds from, and and if there's lack of confidence in the uh, in the UK economy. So Larry Summers, on uh, Bloomberg on Friday, said the UK is now behaving like an emerging market, turning itself into a submerging market. I mean, there's clearly a lack of confidence that's come out of the, out of this budget. So it's going to be harder to uh, to to sell those bonds, which means you are going to have to offer a high yield. Not when you're selling the bonds to banks. When you're selling bonds to banks, they... They don't care. They don't yeah. care. They, 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 they care, but as they can't... It's more than zero. That's yeah, right. They can't do yeah, anything about it. You, yeah. you, I've got to give you an offer. Like, you, you, you can buy the bonds. My way of talking about what happens when the government issues bonds is the deficit itself you know, creates an extra £500 billion worth of reserves. Uh, and you can't spend the reserves because you're holding them on trust for the people who've got bank deposits in which the actual spendable money has gone. Uh, and then the government comes along and says, well, given you $500 billion in reserves, or have created those reserves for you, uh, would you like to swap them for bonds which are going to yield you 1% or 2% 
on that, you know, 50 or 100 million a year, uh, the government can make that arbitrary price virtually anything it likes. But what the central banks are doing is making it a very high price. And that, uh, you know, it's not necessary to, get to make that high price to get the banks to buy it, but it is necessary to make it a high price to make non-bank foreign institutions buy it off, off the private banks. Not that that's necessary, by the way, uh, but that's, that's the normal thing that happens, and that actually counteracts government money creation uh, from running a deficit. So back to this idea of growth, and, uh, you know, is it even possible... Uh, because growth requires people, and there's not that many people looking for work right now. Uh, this is a point that Martin Wolf made in the uh, the FT at the weekend. Uh, and uh, by the way, a bit of cross promotion here, Steve. I'm interviewing Martin Wolf for the uh, for the Y Curve, which is a, another uh, weekly podcast that I do. Uh, so uh, have a listen into that. But he makes the point <clears throat> that the Chancellor is saying he wants to get two and a half percent growth per year. There's predictions the workforce is going to grow at half percent each year between now and 2027. The trend growth of output per worker was only 0.5%, which obviously isn't enough. If we have 2.5% growth but only a half percent increase in the workforce, then productivity would have to, and only half percent growth in output, then productivity would have to increase fourfold. Uh, and you're not going to achieve that through tax cuts, are there? So, I mean, just the very basic level, it seems like Quasi Kuotang's uh, theories don't really stretch very far. They don't, and they're completely inappropriate for the world we're in. I think we're just seeing the climate catastrophe we're seeing literally today, a typhoon in the Philippines that went from a scale three to a scale five in a matter of hours, uh, the one that's now hitting Canada and washing houses away into the ocean. Uh, the, the scale of climate damage we're seeing is huge, and we're going to have to go backwards in consumption levels uh, very, very soon, or we're going to see even worse uh, climate breakdowns. Uh, the last thing we ought to be pursuing is growth right now, and the last thing we want to do is, is, is making the distribution of income worse than it already is, which this budget clearly does. We have to be really going to be preparing for rationing, and that's the last thing we're doing right now, particularly with a, a government that's still obsessed with the idea you can grow at 2.5% per annum, which means you're going to you know, double your load on the, on the planet every 30 years. Uh, we're already overloading the planet drastically. Um, so we've got the wrong people in charge of the ship at the right. And what they're doing uh, you know, will be catastrophic in the, long, in, in the medium term, not in the long All term. Right. But so the back to the, the fundamental question about how much money is too much money, how much can the government really spend? I mean, is it, is it an issue that they are creating so much or spending so much? I mean, twice as much as they spent on furlough they're going to spend over, over the next year? What are the repercussions? How is that going to play out? How will we see that influencing the the man in the street in the UK? Well, it, it, it's complicated by the fact that a lot of that's going simply straight to the energy companies, as you said. So this yeah. is not causing a large increase in the amount of money in the poor, like the bottom seventy percent of the population uh, in the UK. It's increasing the money in the top five percent of the population. Um, it, it, it's, I think it's going to cause a total scramble because normally that money would go into asset prices, but asset prices are being creamed by rising interest rates. So what we're likely to see is just straight out hoarding, I think, by the wealthy and slow down their rate of consumption. They're not, they're not going to be buying assets when asset prices are plunging because of rising interest rates. And they're not, they're not going to do consumer shopping because you know, they're not going to drastically increase what they're consuming because they don't need to, unlike the poor. So I just see it... Uh, you know, we're going to get stagnation out of this. 
right. rather than growth. The only good thing about it is that stagnation is better than growth right now, given the load we're putting on the So the, the, the amount of money that's in circulation is going to increase, but <clears throat> the velocity of money is going to slow down, possibly to a, uh, an all-time low by the sounds of it. I would guess so, because again, the velocity of money reflects who you give the money to. You give it to the wealthy, they don't spend rapidly, and that's where the money is going. If you're giving this to the poor, which is what they should have been doing, um, continuing the furlough scheme approach and so on, uh, then yes, the money would turn over more rapidly. But you were likely to see a plunge in the velocity of money too. It's going to be interesting to see whether somebody else, you know, well, I mean, I think the UK is the only country that's actually saying, hey, uh, we've got a supply-driven inflation problem. Let's grow our way out of this one. Uh, I think they're the only ones uh, taking that approach. So it's going to be interesting to see, uh, you know, the approach in other parts of the world. It's interesting in Turkey, they're going completely the opposite way, aren't they? They're actually putting their interest rates down because uh, Erdogan, who I think might be equally as crazy, has this this idea that if you uh, push up interest rates, that actually adds to inflation. Is there anything to support his argument there? Well, largely because interest rates were a cost on, on production. If you have demurrage costs and, and you know, uh, short-term financing costs for production, you put the rates up, uh, then you're increasing your financial costs on top of increasing physical costs. So, yes, there is an argument for that. Could he be right then? Could we find that Turkey comes out best out of this? I mean, the only reason they're suffering is because of lack of confidence in the, in the markets. But the market's... Well, the- you know. the, the trouble with Turkey's got it, it, it's, it. Turkey's has its balance of payments problems as well as the UK, so that's that tends to wipe mm. everything else out. They're they're borrowing in their own in a foreign currency. They're in deep trouble no matter yeah. what what happens. So I'm not about to make a Turkey to UK comparison, but I think they're both Turkeys at the moment. <laughs> that's for sure. All right, very good. Now look, next week you mentioned you know the two percent inflation target. Uh, we're going to look at why is it 2%? Could it be more? Could it be less? The reason I asked that was because Richard Clarida uh, from the from the Fed was asked on Bloomberg uh, last week, uh, why 2% inflation? Could it be 2.5% or 3%? And he basically said, well, yeah, it could be. We've just got used to 2%. How different would the world be? I mean, it's good that it's that scientific, isn't it? Uh, how different would the world be if it was 3 or 4%? So we're going to ask the question, why the hell is inflation the target set at 2%? That's next week. Good to talk, Steve. Okay, mate. I'll look up some data on that one before we chat. Great. Nothing like a bit of research. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next week. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.